So, loved ones, our catechetical reading comes from the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 8. We'll read these questions and answers responsively together. So, question 24. How are these articles divided? Into three parts. God the Father and our creation, God the Son and our deliverance, and God the Holy Spirit and our sanctification. Since there is only one divine being, why do you speak of three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Because that is how God has revealed himself in his word. These three distinct persons are one true eternal God. And now the scripture reading from Titus chapter 3, verse 1 to 8. The Apostle Paul says to Titus, a preaching pastor, saying, Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and to show true humility toward all men. At one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May he add his blessing to it as we consider it this evening, loved ones. You know, last week we considered together the necessity and nature of true faith. And we left off considering what we must believe, the certain truths that we must hold on to and cling to by faith as revealed in God's word. And the summary of those articles of faith are presented for us in the Apostles' Creed. And the Apostles' Creed, rightly interpreted, as the Heidelberg Catechism mentions here, is somewhat divided into three distinct parts. As it's laid out there, we believe in God the Father, we believe in God the Son, and we believe in God the Holy Spirit. Yet, these three distinct persons mysteriously are not three gods, but yet one true God, now and forevermore. And so from the passage that's before us tonight in Titus, I want us to consider briefly how God is our triune Savior. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And so we'll see that the gospel of our triune God is the most important and vital thing to always keep before us and to insist that it always be before us. So I want you to look again back at the text in Titus with me. In chapter 3, verse 8 in particular, verse 8, the Apostle Paul, speaking about, or rather speaking to a preaching pastor, Titus, he tells him that you are supposed to stress these things. Now that verb, stress, can also be translated constantly or strongly affirm, like the King James says, strongly 
affirm these things, or the ESV says to insist on these things. So what are the things that a pastor before God's people is supposed to stress and strongly affirm? Well, the articles of faith that Paul had just previously mentioned in the verses above, namely what God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have done for sinners like us. So in short, we see that a preaching pastor must constantly affirm, strongly affirm the gospel of God, our triune Savior. Now, why? Why is it so important that we stress this gospel? What is the purpose? Why must a preacher constantly affirm what God has done to save sinners in his grace and his love? Well, Paul tells us in the rest of verse 8, look again at verse 8, he goes on to say, so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things, is the gospel, right, are excellent and profitable for everyone. So in other words, what he's saying is that insist on these truths of the gospel because such truths work themselves into the hearts of believers to make them workers of good. So the gospel, what Paul is saying, is both excellent in itself and also profitable. It, it produces something that is profitable. It is beautiful and worthy of, its, of, of our attention in itself, like art is, right? We go and admire art because there's something beautiful and attractive in it. But the more that we look at the beauty of the gospel, then the more it makes our own hearts beautiful, is what Paul is saying. So can imagine this with me, a museum. Imagine a museum that promises the most excellent, beautiful art to look at, displayed on its walls. But I also promise that as you go through this museum and intently look at that art, that beautiful, excellent art, then the more beautiful it will make you in return. Imagine that. That would be wonderful. All of us would want to go to that museum, right? Well, that is what the church is supposed to be, right? But it can only be that if the pastor and the people are committed on this, insisting on the gospel of God stressing that, putting it before God's people time and time again. Now, how does that work? Well, it's not just by way of example. The gospel does more than just show us how to live like God or to be like God. God promises to use the gospel to make us live like him, to make us like him. Paul says in Romans 1.16, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. God has implanted, so to speak, the power to save in the gospel, in the words of good news. God has made it so powerful as to accomplish something, namely our salvation. Peter, in his letter, says that the gospel is like this seed, this imperishable seed of life that God plants into our hearts to give us new birth, right? The word of the gospel enters into our hearts God causes it to take root into our hearts and kind of take over our hearts little by little, more and more. And then it sprouts as well upward and outward, resulting in newness of life. Only the gospel can do this. Paul is telling Titus to focus on the gospel of our triune God because it is the only thing this side of glory that will induce new life. Now, Paul speaks here about how the spirit of God uses the word to wash us clean, to regenerate our hearts, making us new again. 
And therefore, a preaching pastor like Titus, again, must insist on the gospel. Commenting on verse 8 at the end here, John Calvin, the great reformer, uh, writes this. He says, Titus is therefore enjoined to disregard other matters and to teach those which are certain and undoubted, to press them on the attention of their hearers, to dwell upon them. While others talk idly about things of little importance, it is the duty and office of a bishop or a pastor or elder to affirm strongly and maintain boldly those things which are believed on good grounds and which edify godliness. And so instead of focusing on insignificant things, idle things, superficial things that do not actually build up the church, we must focus on what will build up the church, what God has promised to build us up in love and in good works. And that thing is the gospel. Only the gospel can produce what is unnatural to us, but is natural to God. What do I mean by that? We'll look back at verses one through two. One through two of our text in chapter three, Paul there, he wants Christians to behave in a certain way. He wants them to be humble, to be submissive to authorities, kind and considerate of others, seeking peace and showing love. So that's a fruit that Paul wants to see in us, that he wants to see in the church. But he doesn't tell Titus to focus on the fruit itself. To produce the fruit, you must focus on the root. So the gospel is what produces that fruit, not the law. So he tells Titus to insist not on what we must do, but what God has done for us, because that is what will produce that fruit in us. Now we look back at verse one on on this, Calvin writes saying, from many passages, it is evident that the apostles had a great difficulty in keeping the common people subject to the authority of magistrate and princes. So he's saying that it's evident from both here and other passages that this was an issue that the apostles had, that the Christians were not by nature willing to submit to authorities above them. He goes on to say, We are all by nature desirous of power. And the consequence is that no one willingly is subject to another. Besides, perceiving that nearly all the principalities and powers of the world were at that time opposed to Christ, they thought them unworthy of receiving any honor. And so he's recognizing that Paul in this is identifying a problem, this unwillingness to submit to authorities and excusing that or justifying that. Oh, they're, they're, they're not accepting of Christ. They're opposed to Christ. Therefore, they're unworthy of receiving any honor. And so we don't have to submit to them. We don't have to uh, love them in that sense. So it's interesting what happens next is Paul transitions in verse 3 to talk about what God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit have done for sinners like us. We see that we naturally refuse to subject ourselves to one another in love, but in the gospel, we see that God has naturally condescended in great love for us and to us. We see that this is the disposition of self-giving for others, and it is natural to God. It is eternally natural to God, essential to his being. How so? Well, because God has always existed in a perfect society of self 
self-giving love. Think of that. Always has existed in a perfect society of self-giving love. What I mean is that prior to the creation of all things, in the infinite time before time, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit eternally gave themselves over to one another in love. The Godhead has always been this perfect, holy society of love. And in this holy society of the Trinity, the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. Yet there are not three gods, but only one God. And so we find there in the Trinity that there is perfect equality, perfect equality, but also personal diversity. Each person of the Godhead is distinct from the other and unique. And at the same time, there is peaceful unity among the three in this perfect, holy society, which is God. God himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the perfect society of love. Now, if we consider humanity, we were made in God's image, right? We were made to reflect his image. God designed us to live in such a society of love. And he intends that we live in a society where each person defers to the interests and the preferences of the other in this perfect harmony and peace. So ideally, we should see each other as equal in dignity while admiring the uniqueness of each person, right? That personal uniqueness and also seeking full peace and unity with one another. That is what God intended us to be and designed us for, but that is not who we naturally are anymore. This is not the way of the world today, is it? Right? People either function by selfish greed, each man for himself, or forced compliance, trying to erase diversity to, make conf- to create a conformity in society, right? In, in our world broken by sin, unprovoked, voluntary sacrificial love for others is less than rare. It is non-existent because it is not natural any longer for sinners to love in that way. And Paul tells us that in this passage. He says what is natural for humans. He says, we once lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. So Paul is saying that by nature now, humans are naturally selfish. We naturally seek our own interests. We naturally pursue our own preferences. We naturally hate one another because we think the other threatens us. And this is why we see the chaos all around us in society and in homes, etc. Because of sin and that selfish pride that runs in us. Now, God is the opposite. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have naturally sought the interest of each other for all of eternity. They have naturally pursued each other's interest above their own, naturally loved one another. And so God has naturally loved us, for we are the great other outside of God. And he has loved us. This holy society of love, therefore, we find is natural to God and it always has been. Where do we see this in action, this love of God? Well, in verse four, we see this. When the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared. It appeared. His goodness and loving kindness. He saved us, not waiting for us to do something good or worthy, not because of works done by us, no, He didn't wait for goodness and loving kindness to naturally spring outside of us. He showed up in love for us first. 
God, our Savior, appeared in the pages of human history. It's amazing. His eternal Trinitarian love richly poured out over the edges of his own holy society to reach us, to reach you in love, to wash you, to renew you, and to give you fellowship with him, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. He's pulled us back by his grace into his holy society of love. Now notice here that in this passage, Paul refers to God in the beginning, God the Father as our Savior in verse 4. So one Savior, God. And then God the Holy Spirit's work of saving us is mentioned in verse 5. And then in verse 6, we find Jesus Christ, God the Son, who is called our Savior, right? And so we have one Savior. God is our Savior. But the Father is our Savior, the Spirit is our Savior, and the Son is our Savior. There are not three Saviors, but there is only one Savior, for God is one. We find that each person of the Trinity is united in the saving act of sinners. There's obviously much more in this text that we could consider, but I want us to just end here with this simple lesson that there is one God who mysteriously exists in three persons. And God has forever existed in that perfect society of holy love. We broke away from that holy society by our own selfish sin in the beginning and by every rebellion since. And now, the only way back into that holy society of the Trinity is by faith in the gospel. And God wants us, he beckons us to come back into that full fellowship with him, with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and with each other, so as First John says, that our joy might be complete in him. That is why, as Paul starts off this passage and ends it, that is why we must insist on the gospel. For the, only the gospel of God can remake us to live like the Trinity in that perfect equality, personal diversity, and peaceful unity. So may God, our triune Savior, continue to remake us in his own image and likeness through the power of the gospel. Amen. Let us pray. Thank you, Father God. Thank you, Son. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for your work of creation, your work of redemption, deliverance, and also your work of sanctification, full Salvation, you have worked, for you are our triune Savior. Lord, we admit again and confess our own sin and how we so fall short of reflecting your glory, that we do not live in that holy society with one another, um, both in, in our own personal lives, in our families, and in society at large. We reflect the brokenness of sin and the selfish pride that naturally runs through humanity. And yet we admire and stand in awe of your beauty and your infinite love as reflected in the, in the Trinity, as we meditate on you existing prior to the creation of time and all things in that perfect society of love. And we rejoice that by the power of your gospel, your grace appearing in human history, that you've called us back to yourself. And you have worked now that newness of life into our hearts through the power of your gospel. And we ask, Lord, that you would continue to remake us in 
the likeness of you in your image, that we would love you and love our neighbor more and more, and so live as a holy, set-apart society here in this world. Make your church here in this place and around the world a light post of reflecting the glory of our triune God. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.